Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, as, as usual, Brandon's uh, songs are very thoughtfully selected and, and did fit very well with um, the lesson. Uh, one of the benefits of um, us sitting near the front is can hear the singing from behind us very loudly. Um, and it's always very encouraging. Visitors who are obviously in mass behind us. Um, it's always very encouraging on Sundays just uh, remembering how worthy God is to be praised uh, for all that he's done and just how much of an achievement it is that God receives praise around the world on Sundays especially um, from people he's redeemed. Um, the lesson this morning is going to be more of a doctrinal lesson. Um, Ephesians 1, 3 through 12, I'm going to read that again as we begin our lesson. Um, and I will be, after a bit, teaching some lessons from Ephesians 1, 3 through 12, going through it a bit. But the main focus of the lesson is really going to be studying and understanding this term used in verse 5 and used in verse 11. This idea of being predestined and what is predestination? Um, it's really important to study doctrine um, for a number of reasons. Uh, one of which is, just as John brought out in um, Deuteronomy, one of the greatest commandments, the greatest commandment, is to love God with all of our heart, our strength, our soul, but also our mind. Um, the more you understand a person, the more you're able to approach them, be closer to them, interact with them reasonably, consider their desires and interests, and really just have a deeper and more meaningful relationship with them, especially when you understand and relate with them on things that matter to them. Um, and so many places in the New Testament really are just kind of pausing to understand what God has done and pausing to kind of just even wonder on those things and be in awe of those things. The first three chapters of Ephesians are like that. And really a part of the critical nature of our faith is cultivating just a, a greater sense of awe and reverence and adoration for just who God is and what he's accomplished and what he's made available. So again, Ephesians 1, 3 through 12, we're going to be focusing on an aspect of what I think is a very critical part of God working with mankind, this idea of predestination. Another reason this is important is I think in the New Testament, this is a very important term. It's not, it's not used in very many places. Um, but just like the word faith is a very important term that can be twisted, misunderstood, can kind of commonly be made to mean something it's not, well, and that can end up creating confusion and difficulty with things that are meant to actually be emboldening our faith and encouraging us in our relationship with God. And, and this is very similar to that, where predestination carries so many wrong ideas with it very commonly. And in my mind, in my experience, it's not an idea that is kind of paused on to really study and find the truth out. And so it kind of can be left this confusing, mysterious term that is really, again, meant to be very emboldening. It's meant to be very encouraging. It's meant to help us understand how faithful God is. So we'll be seeing all of that. And I, I hope that this lesson helps this to not, not just be doctrinally more clear, but practically help us as well in our relationship with God. So let's go ahead and read Ephesians 1, 3 through 12 again. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 12. And I, I encourage you to like um, mark your Bible here. We will be, we'll be coming back here, but we're going to deviate for a little bit um, after the reading. Ephesians 1, 3 through 12. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the kind intention which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So predestination can oftentimes be taught, um, or is oftentimes taught, as God arbitrarily picking people before they're born, um, you know, this person is going to be indefinitely saved, this person is going to go to hell, and that God just randomly just kind of picks people, there's nothing they can do about it, free will is just kind of an illusion, and the people that God is destined for salvation, well, they're just kind of going to find it and stay there, people that he's destined to be doomed and go to hell, that's where they'll end up, there's really nothing they can ultimately do. And I just, as clearly as possible, want to suggest that that is a great distance and in many ways an opposite idea to what is actually being taught here. Um, That there is indeed a people God has predestined, but ultimately all of that fits within a purpose and a place. Think about this as kind of a beginning illustration to hopefully serve as a foundation as we move forward. Um... For a while, I was going to college, and every time I took a class, the same thing always happened on the first day of class. And that was when the college professor, the teacher, would give a syllabus to the students. And if you haven't gone to college, um, a syllabus is basically an outline of the class, what's going to be taught in the class, and expectations in the class. And the teacher had already predestined the people who are going to pass the class or fail it. And they made that very clear. They said, look, If you want to get a passing grade, this is what you need to do. I've laid it all out for you. If you do this work, if you meet these requirements, you will pass the class, period. And if you're going to neglect that, if you're not going to do it, and they'll sometimes have attendance expectations, if you're going to miss this this many classes, you will fail. I will fail you in the class. So the professor is using his authority over the class to say, here are the requirements. Here's what to expect. And it should come as no surprise then when you fail the class at the end of it all if you have neglected what I've already told you you need to do and what you need to avoid not doing. And I have failed college classes because I failed to follow through on the things that the professor clearly laid out at the beginning of the class. And there was a kind of person who would use the resources of the class to ensure that they got at least a passing grade if they did not understand the material very well, right? I even knew uh, somebody in Alabama who did very badly in a class that was required for his major. He was going to college for an engineering major. I think it was like a high-level math class. And he just, he could not get his mind to understand the formulas that he needed to pass the class. So he would go to the college professor's office 
constantly. I mean, he was constantly going to the office, constantly getting tutored, and he still, at the end of the class, didn't understand and just couldn't wrap his mind around it. He still got a passing grade because the professor could tell he was diligently striving to do everything that he could to understand the material and pass the class. So the professor, seeing all of this zeal, was like, you know what, I'm going to give you a passing grade. So anyway, there were a people that were chosen to pass the class. And the professor at the beginning of the class already laid that out. Now, that left the student then with the decision, what are they going to do? You get to decide what you're going to do to either pass or fail. So I want to show first how predestination, like the word faith, faith is a word that in the Old Testament you'd think it's used all the time, but the word faith as in a person's trust in God is actually only used maybe like twice, whereas in the New Testament it's over a hundred times. It's a very common word in the New Testament describing what makes a relationship with God work, right? But faith is not absent from the Old Testament just because it's not used in that term. It's the same with heaven, eternal life. There's a lot of terms or examples that illustrate things that in the New Testament are said very concisely. And those words, like faith, what they're doing is they're summarizing something that you've been seeing in the Old Testament all along, and it's just being fulfilled and brought together in this very simple term. And I hope to look at a couple examples that make it really clear that predestination is not just a New Testament term, but this has actually been a faithful habit of how God has worked with mankind all along. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Or just for simplicity's sake, we're just going to look at a couple of examples. Both of them will be from Deuteronomy. But with these two examples, I just want to put forward that these two examples are not at all the only two places where we see this. Um, but they're just to illustrate, again, what this looks like in the Old Testament, and it helps us navigate this term that oftentimes is defined incorrectly and carries with it a lot of wrong ideas. So Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 14, so just kind of to introduce what we're going to be looking at. This is when uh, Israel was on the border of entering into Canaan. This was the second generation after Egypt. They were going to go in with Joshua's leadership. And so Deuteronomy has a lot of preparation in it. And God had already a plan that he was about to outline. He'd already chosen some things ahead of time. And what we're going to see is God had predestined a plan to choose a place where he would put his name and there was going to be grace that was going to be reserved exclusively there for the people who would go there and do what he said because of his promises. So if that sounds confusing, we're going to walk through it in Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 14. But again, just kind of keep in mind this idea of God making a choice and then you have the choice now because of what God has said and how that's meant to draw us to make a decision. So Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 14. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their ashram with fire. And you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and obliterate their name from that place. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God, but you shall seek the Lord, notice this, at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. 
There you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. There also you and your household shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security, then it shall come about that, notice this again, the place in which the Lord your God will choose for his name to dwell There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution of your hand, all your choice votive offerings which you shall vow to the Lord. And again, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and daughters, your male and female servants and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Be careful that that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see. But notice again, In the place which the Lord your God chooses, in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. This idea of going specifically to the place that God will choose is said also in verse 18, it's said again in verse 21, and it's said again in verse 26. So God had already predestined something, and he had already predestined that there was going to be a place that he was going to choose from among all their tribes, and they were to go there exclusively to offer their burnt offerings and sacrifices. Why? Because God exclusively decided he will only accept those things if they, had, they are offered at that place. And notice in verse 7, this is another theme of the chapter. It says, there you will rejoice before the Lord. That's said again and again in this chapter. And so God has reserved a community of people who are going to be in this place, who are all there because they're seeking him out according to his decision, and they are seeking his favor according to his choice. And in a sense, God has chosen that those people who are concerned about this will be there and receive his grace. So you think about this. Say somebody hears about this, right? They hear these things, they hear God outline these things, that he's already chosen these things, What would separate a person then who choose what God has already chosen and says, well, God said he's reserved all of this at this specific location where his name is. So I I really need to go there compared to someone who says, no, it's, I know he said that, but it's not that big of a deal. And so they sacrifice on the high places or wherever else they want. What would, in their attitude toward God, what would separate those two people? What I want to establish here, just fundamentally, predestination is not God's way of undermining the free will. It's God's way of heightening the will and highlighting our will. But in a specific way, what's being isolated here, ultimately, the separation of these decisions is someone's attitude toward God himself. If somebody chooses where God had said to go, They're doing that on the basis of the fact that they want to submit to God. And they respect God's authority, they respect God's decision, and they want to do what God has said because of his promises. Look at another place in Deuteronomy chapter 30. It's kind of difficult narrowing down some places. 
Um, it was really tempting to bring up Deuteronomy 28. I feel like that would end up kind of overstuffing things, but you see in Deuteronomy 28, again, God predestining punishment, discipline, predestining, predestining blessings. But in Deuteronomy 30, um, again, just for the simplicity of trying to just show a couple of places here, we're going to focus in verses 1 through 6. And this is where, uh, as we've looked at kind of recently in the past, after Israel had been scattered to all the nations, and we see later in God's work with Israel, specifically when they were brought to Babylon, that God had already highlighted that all of that would happen back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He had already made it clear that that's what he would do if they would be uh, disobedient and never return back to him. But God had already predestined a purpose and a plan for that, that he would bring them back to captivity, bring them back from captivity rather, not to again. So Deuteronomy 31 through 6, just think again about this idea that God is already making a decision. He's already predestined something to happen. And we want to look at again, how is that heightening the will and someone's attitude toward God, not undermining the will. So Deuteronomy 31 through 6. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the end of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, the heart of your descendants, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. So God had already chosen a people ahead of time, hadn't he? God had already said, I'm going to bring you back and there will be people that I'm going to gather again back to the land that I gave you to inherit. So again, we see that God had made a, chis- a, ch- a choice far ahead of time and that choice involved a people. But what would make a person elect? What would cause them to be one of the chosen people that God predestined to take part in these promises? If you look in verse 2, This would be someone who chose God, that had learned from the discipline that he had administered in scattering them, that they felt humbled in their attitude toward God. And so what made them a part of this group that he predestined? It was their humility, their godly sorrow leading to repentance. Verse 6, it's their circumcised heart. And so again, it's not diminishing the need for them to make a decision. It's God giving them the decision. And in giving them that decision, it is highlighting, most of all, their attitude toward God. And if they don't love God, if they're not interested in God, well, then there's no reason for them to make the choice, right? But if they're humbled in their hearts, they want to turn, and they're humbled by their sin, then God is saying, I guarantee you, I've already prepared for this. I've already foreseen it. I will bring you back, guaranteed. And I will help you, I will work with you, I will bring you back, and I will plant you in the land, and I will bless you. So imagine somebody who is considering God, they're convicted of their sin. How much it would matter to them 
people like Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, who's reflecting on these things. Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1, where Nehemiah is reflecting on these things as they are in these foreign nations. And they're remembering that God had already predestined the things that had come upon them and promised he would bring them back if they would humble themselves. And we see them planting themselves on these promises and not being let let down by the guarantee. So here's the principle I want to end this series of points with. Ultimately, predestination confronts us with the decision to separate and to join with. And we see this throughout the Bible. Think about the example even of someone like Rahab who understood God has predestined the, the town of Jericho, the city, the whole land of Canaan. It's going to fall. And so I can't stop that from happening. What can I do? I can separate myself from these people and join myself with the people of God. Again and again, this is a decision that needs to be made and we're confronted with the same choice. When God says, here's what's going to happen, guaranteed, you cannot stop it. We either have the choice to separate ourselves from the world and from sin and join ourselves with God and with his purpose, with his plan, or we can suffer the consequences and we can be faced with the reality that when God speaks, like what John was saying, we come into judgment and we say, oh, you really meant that. That's exactly the point of predestination. God means what he says. Let's go back to Ephesians then and see how these things are fulfilled and hopefully maybe have a little bit more clarity to navigate these terms. And I'll just briefly point out a few things in the text. So the idea is predestination is ultimately fulfilled and brought together in Jesus. This idea that God has a plan, he has a place, a people, and a purpose that all of this is culminating in, all of that is completely brought together in Christ. And so again, it's not that God is arbitrarily choosing people, but that for those who humble themselves and plant themselves in Christ, they choose Jesus, they are baptized into Christ after repenting of their sins and believing in the message of the gospel, that they are seeking the Lord, that they are striving to abide in him, they are striving to keep themselves in his word, God will make sure his purpose in them is fulfilled to completion. Let's read Ephesians 1, 3-12 again and work through it section by section, looking specifically again at the idea of predestination. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, and here's the place, in the heavenly places in Christ. And here are the people, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us, and here's the purpose, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And here's the plan in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who are, who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So verse 3. Just like in Deuteronomy 12, 
and I've got this on the board, so remember Deuteronomy chapter 12. How does God draw us to the place where his favor is held? He says, there are things that you will find here. There is favor, there are blessings, there is a community here that is exclusive, and you cannot get it anywhere else. So in verse 3, God has reserved and given every spiritual blessing to those who are in Christ. And those blessings are in the heavenly places in Christ. So think about this, just like Deuteronomy 12. If a person is seeking the Lord and their, their attitude toward him is they're humble, they want to be with him, what should that promise then do to their will? I want to choose to be wherever God is. Wherever he says his grace is found and his favor is, I want to invest myself there. And then four through six, God's purpose, his plan to adopt a people to himself through Christ. So again, it's not just that individuals, it's not that individuals are arbitrarily chosen or that this idea of once you're saved, you can never lose that salvation. That's, that's really not the idea at all here. The idea is in verse four is that God was always looking forward, just like in Deuteronomy 30, that God would do something for a people who would be in Christ. Just like Deuteronomy 30, where God had already foreordained that whoever humbles themselves, whoever humbles their heart and is convicted of their sins and is seeking the Lord, here's what I will give them and do for them as a guarantee. It's exactly what we find here in verses 4 through 6. God was always looking forward to the people who would be in Christ, the way that he would be able to bless them and fight for them and work with them and have unity with them. And I think the idea is too, is God anticipated every possible obstacle involved in our adoption. That no matter how difficult your circumstance might be, no matter how distant you may feel from God's character, his holiness, ultimately none of that matters. All that matters is that God is faithful and has proven through his faithfulness he is capable of cleaning, restoring, transforming any person, no matter their condition, if they will just root themselves in Christ. He will do it, and he's proven it. And so God has anticipated that if you've been adopted into Christ, it doesn't matter what condition you may be in, what sin you might be struggling with, all that matters is that you put your trust in God's capability to do what he promises. And that leads us to 7 through 12. Especially verse 9. He's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times that is the summing up of all things in Christ. That God has been able to work through history, the disobedience of Israel, the crucifixion of Jesus. God was able to use all these different hopeless conditions and hopeless circumstances ultimately to further the purpose of his will. And no matter what circumstance Israel put God in, he was still able to work it out for the counsel of his will and to bring everything together in Christ. And then in verse 11, there's a personal promise made here that we've obtained an inheritance, those in Christ, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Notice in verse 12, the purpose of that is that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So again, God has demonstrated that he is able to fulfill his purpose with his people. And how is this meant to affect us? It's meant to give us the reassurance 
to put more trust in God and to know that as we trust in him, as we choose him, there's never a safer and secure place we can be than in the hands of God's purpose and promises. And that's as simple as I, um, as I hope to make it. And so I'd like to look at some lessons and reflections, just again, just bringing this together. Number one, just again, predestination highlights and draws out both our heart's attitude and our will towards God. It doesn't mean that God arbitrarily and beyond what anybody can possibly know, he just kind of mysteriously foreordains that there's no way a single person could get to heaven no matter how hard they try, they just, the gates are shut. But then for another person, again, just completely arbitrary, they'll get to heaven, they'll find it, and there's nothing they can do. That's, that's not the idea at all. And that just like when you look at faith through the Old Testament, the New Testament, we can understand what the truth of faith is because of patterns of examples. With predestination, there are patterns of examples that show that God is drawing out our heart's will and confronting us with a decision. And look at Ephesians chapter 5, 5 through 7. Um, it kind of shows a lot of this in the opposite. Again, with God confronting us with a, with a choice where we either need to forsake where we were and join with him or suffer the consequences. Ephesians 5, 5 through 7. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Has God predestined something there? Has he predestined a people? Does he have a purpose? Those who are immoral, impure, covetous, God has already predestined, no matter what anyone may say, no matter what they do, no matter the pleasure they may be getting out of their life without any apparent consequences, here's what God has preordained already. They will suffer his wrath. And so what are we going to do? In verse 7, how does that affect our will? We are to forsake and separate from the things that are unholy and we're to join and grow and abide in God's purpose. And so again, we're confronted with a choice because when God has said, these people, this group, will suffer my wrath, then we can know the end right from the beginning. And we with wisdom can make judgments, not by sight, but by faith, that what God says is proven to be true. Number two, predestination then gives us clear certainty in our faith. Back in verse 11 that we looked at when it says that God has made known to us the mystery of his will, he's worked everything to the counsel of his will, um, God has proven that he's not inconsistent and unpredictable. He always keeps his promises. He always keeps his word. Sometimes when someone is predictable, it can seemingly make them boring, but it actually may mean that they're just a faithful person and if you kind of think about some people who either they're not living with their parents anymore, and I've known friends whose parents have passed away, 
And they'll say things sometimes. It's like, oh man, in this situation, I could just hear my dad's voice in my head, you know, telling me what to do, right? Because there was a consistency where even when they weren't around their dad, even when he wasn't alive anymore, they knew what he was already thinking or what he had said or done in the past. And so because God is consistent with his words, God can be known. And so we can know God. We can count on what God has said. Just like Ephesians 5, 5 through 7, we can know the beginning from the end of immorality, covetousness, impurity. And we don't need God to be speaking directly into our head or standing right next to us and shouting at us to know what his will is on the matter. And so because God is not unpredictable, we can then have a greater sense of certainty to be very bold in our faith. This works both ways, by the way, obviously with understanding consequences. But if you remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at Romans 8, where it says that God justifies, and it mentioned that God is able to work all things out for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And so when it says that God has demonstrated that he will bless you, that he is working to complete the beginning of your faith and salvation, that he is striving to fight to keep what belongs to him, and that he is striving to use every situation ultimately for the good of his purpose, then it doesn't matter then what we may feel or think to the contrary, because God's truth is greater than what our own thoughts may presume, what circumstance may seem to be revealing, what tragedy may make us feel emotionally. Predestination helps us understand that God's word holds greater weight and authority than any of those things. And God's determination to bless and do good is greater than what may otherwise seem to be true. So number three, predestination humbles our attitude towards God's decisions. The idea is he's ultimately sovereign in whatever he chooses. So again, when God says, here is where those who practice immorality are going, here's where it's end is. We could think, well, I don't like that very much. I'd rather that not be true. If God is sovereign, if that's what he's chosen, it really doesn't matter then, ultimately, what I may think about that. It only matters so much as I need to make the decision to let God's word guide my will and change it. Because if God has made a decision as a sovereign king, then that's it and that's the end. And that's not just just on salvation. But think about other matters as well. Difficult commands where God instructs me to be hospitable. Do I trust that God, in practicing his word, will work things out for good and work with me as I struggle? Um, Difficult teachings. This next Sunday in our Bible class, we're going to be studying for two weeks what God says about marriage and divorce and remarriage. You can find all sorts of different teachings on it, but ultimately... What Jesus said about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, that is the end of it. And what he says, that's, that's it. And again, other matters as well, that with God's promises, God's warnings, no matter what it is, if God has spoken conclusively, whether in promise or instruction, humility towards God and recognizing his sovereignty means letting his word be true, though every other man be a liar. And no matter how my heart may, want to find a, may try to find loopholes or reinterpret things, I need to recognize that what God has chosen, what he's decided on, if he's made the decision, that's the end. 
But I want to look at Romans 11 to conclude the lesson. Um, I was really tempted to look at some things in Romans 9 through 11 because Paul is really stopping on this idea of predestination for three chapters. Um, But I at least want to look at the end of the context. So Romans 9 through 11 is a section where Paul is kind of working out Israel physically had been given all of these promises by God, but really what God was always doing was working towards the spiritual fulfillment. And so in Romans 9 through 11, he's working on these same points that God always had a purpose, always had a plan, that it was always people of faith that would inherit the full plan and the purpose and the promise, and that God would bless them and then draw people to convert and change so that they could be a part of this. And at the end of Romans 11, finishing this context in verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And the idea is if we really grasp these things, this is not just an exercise of intellectual study. This isn't some theological work that we're dealing with here. We're dealing with something that fundamentally leads us deeper into a sense of awe in God's wisdom, a greater sense of heartfelt devotion, a greater love for God, a greater passion for trust and serving him, Um, And just like verse 34 and 35, think Paul in saying, well, who has become his counselor? That we're not the ones to sit in the seat of telling God, well, no, it would be better to do it this way. Or God, you've made that judgment, but there's just too many people who are lost and it would seem better if you open that gate a little more wide. God's wisdom, his judgments, if we learn to have the humility to accept him at his word in simplicity of faith, it ultimately leads us to this overwhelming sense of awe and adoration for his judgments, no matter what they are. I'd like to spend just a minute in a word of prayer. And after praying, um, if anyone has anything that they'd like to bring forward at this time, we'll stand and sing after the prayer. Let's pray.